As society seems to crumble around us, we make our way back to the foothills of the mountains. Rifles in hand, we set up our camp, and the light of our campfire filters up through the bases of the pine trees, and above the canopy of needles, we can see the cold stars in the dark night sky. We sit around the campfire, we laugh, we talk, we remember the issues of the past, and we look out beyond the pines into the dark veil of gray mist, and we see the movement, the shadows slumping around the ground, peering out through around the trees. The wild calls for us. Tonight, we talk. Around this campfire, thank you for joining me in the camp of the beyond. This is The Marauder Rises. Hello, gents. Sorry for the delay from prior podcast episodes. I have had one heck of a past month, past month and a half or so. So to let you in on a little bit of, um, a little bit of information about myself, uh, I have a job that sends me around, and I've been traveling around quite a bit for about past month or so, uh, just working for different clients and stuff like that. Um, also aside from that, I was a groomsman in a wedding and then the subsequent weekend, uh, I had my own, uh, public wedding. My wife and I have actually been married since earlier this year, but, um, it was a very private wedding that we had had, um, suspecting COVID shutdowns and stuff like that. And it had been very impromptu. We had been engaged for some time and, uh, we just decided to go ahead and get married and only our close family and friends knew at the time. And, um, we decided to go ahead and have a public wedding. And, uh, she, she and I both had family that would have been fairly offended if they had found out that we had gotten married and they hadn't, uh, you know, been invited to the wedding because so anyways um it's been one heck of a past month and a half and i apologize that i'm not more regular you know with uh you know there's guys there's guys in our community that have fairly regular episode releases and stuff like that um i i wish i could sit down i wish i had more time in the day that i could sit down and and uh record um there's actually a little bit of planning that goes into a lot of these episodes um because i try to cover you know, decent amount of information. Uh, and so a lot of it is, it's not necessarily researched, but it is sitting down and writing out my thoughts about various topics and, and, uh, making a more or less a little, a little schedule for myself to do for these episodes. So anyways, I'm not trying to make an excuse. I'm just trying to give you an explanation as to why I've been kind of MIA with the podcast. If you don't know, um, if you, if you go to Instagram, you can see me posting, fairly regularly there. That's marauder.png. It's like my sixth page. Um, you can go to my telegram. Um, it's the Marauder Project and the Marauder Project chat. Um, I'll try to put the links down in the, the description of this podcast episode. Um, aside from that, sorry, you can kind of hear, I'm actually out on a job right now. I'm in the hotel room 
you can kind of hear the train going by my hotel, so that's wonderful. It's like 11 o'clock at night, and I finally got some time to sit down. I've got a little bit of an outline set aside for this podcast, and <laughs> here comes the train at 11 o'clock at night, right? Uh, of course. Just let that go by a little bit. Anyways, so enough about that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the show. Uh, I do not, I, I think I have 13 episodes out right now. And I know I talked about this before on a, a little bit of a previous episode, but um, I, I, have, uh, I think last time I said I had something around the line of 10,000 listens or something like that for the totality of my episodes. And I think at the time I had 11 or 12 podcast episodes now i think this is going to be the 14th episode and i just checked the analytics and i've got 15,000 listens in totality on the on the sum of my episodes and guys that's that's you guys that's that's i really freaking appreciate it um you know it's for me it's just sitting down writing out the plan um recording the episode trying to give all the information I can, editing it, and then releasing it for you guys. You guys are the ones that listen to it. You guys make this possible, and I appreciate it. I wouldn't listen. I wouldn't, I would try to continue doing it if, uh, there were less people listening. Um, God knows it would be, it would be hard, but, um, anyways, that's, a lot of this is word of mouth Instagram community, so I really appreciate all the support you guys have given me. Um, I'm not going to start doing ads or anything like that. I know some people, they they get popular and, and they start doing ads or any, something like that. Um, although I'd like to have a little bit more extra money. I am not in need of any extra money by any means. You know, everybody would like a little bit of extra money. Um, the only the only way I'd monetize this, this podcast is if it was with my you know, with, with my own products or something like that. And so if I were to start, start a side business with, um, based off of, you know, the Marauder page, um, selling outdoors, tactical, whatever equipment, uh, or making a movement or what have you, I might, uh, broadcast this or that on this, this, uh, podcast. But aside from that, I'm not going to, I have no plans on monetizing this podcast. Okay, moving on to the topic. So I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, some guys had been asking me to do more on philosophy. Um, so they had asked me, they had, they had listened to the Virtues podcasts, uh, the two Virtues episodes, and um, they had asked me to do more on philosophy and theology. So uh, this episode, I was going to name something along the lines of life of contemplation and life of toil, or you can call it contemplation, toil, and strife or something along those lines. Um, and so th- the reason behind this is uh, this is going to be a discussion about uh, training and hardening yourself in the spirit for spiritual warfare uh, that manifests itself in physical warfare in the coming age of darkness. We already exist in the age of darkness. Um, it's been the age of darkness has been here for a while, but it's getting darker. 
it's getting more extreme. It's getting more ferocious. So I think this conversation about the philosophy behind it, the mindset that you need to have, um, the theological deepening, uh, it needs to occur in you. And that, that regardless of whether you're a, a Christian, a theist, an atheist, or whatever, right? And so atheists, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to be you're going to be challenged by this episode. I did that in the virtues episode. Um, got a lot of good feedback from that. I got, I actually heard from guys who were agnostics and atheists and they said, man, especially with that first virtues episode, they said, I've never been challenged like that. Right. And so that's very, if you, if you listen to those episodes and give them honest, um, you know, honest understanding, honest contemplation, uh, and you're an atheist, good for you. Good for you. That's really good. Um, at the very least, you're honest with yourself and you're l- willing to listen, right? I, uh, I, I know a lot of people say, uh, a lot of theists say there's no such thing as a true atheist um, because I know a lot of guys in the atheist community say it, atheist isn't an, asser- isn't an assertion. It's not a, a claim that one thing doesn't exist. It's just a lack of belief right? But that's not really true. Uh, uh, I know that the name atheist implies that, but that's not just not really human nature. We, we produce opinions based on assertions, right? We produce opinions based on certain understandings about the world. And human nature just really isn't that type where we can just adopt, adopt a lack of something, right? Um, that's just, um, it, like, for example, it's much easier for, uh, it, it, or maybe it's much more natural for you to adopt an anti perspective than you are to just to adopt an opinion of a, a void, right? So it's, it's more natural for a human to reject the idea of a, of a divine entity or a deity and totality as opposed to just have a lack of opinion in regards to spirituality. Uh, sorry, that's a little bit of a tangent, but a little bit of an explanation that I thought I should give. So the reason that if an, if an honest atheist, the reason that an honest atheist isn't actually an atheist is because if an honest atheist is truly approaching this, uh, the subject, the topic of spirituality, if they're approaching it from an honest standpoint and saying that um, a rational argument can sway my mind, then they truly can never be anti-God. They can never be truly anti-spirituality. If you're open to the idea, you know, that's kind, kind of the scientific method, right? So if you're open to the idea that your mind can be swayed in one way or another, then you can't really be anti that topic. So that's all to say that if you approach this, this, uh, conversation, this discussion with a, with a true honesty, right? A a true desire to search and find the truth and you're an atheist or an agnostic, I guess, uh, you know, a true atheist is more or less an agnostic Then good for you. I appreciate you. Um, if you're just, you know, set in your ways and, 
don't really have any desire to see the truth. I, I find that's a lot of atheists, that a lot of atheists really don't have many good reasons as to why they're atheists. They have a lot of good regurgitated talking points. Um, they say things like, a god can't exist because bad thing happened. Um, or God doesn't exist because I can't walk outside my door and see God. Why God exists, I can't see God, right? <laughs> what was that? The meme that was like, God doesn't exist because men make my pee-pee hard or something. <laughs> so, gosh, there's like a, there's a treasure trove of, of, of the, the reason that atheists often come off as the sophisticated ones is because the sophisticated Christians and sophisticated theists in general give atheists way too much charity. And so there's a, a treasure trove of just bad ideas that come out of atheism and just get regurgitated as if they were true. And athe or, and then Christians and, and theists in general just kind of let it slide because we give them a lot of generosity, right? We don't challenge their idiotic beliefs because, well, we and a desire to convert them. We we don't want to come off as tyrannical or or mean or or obsessive or anything like that. So we just let them regurgitate their stupid little sayings. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, they it just kind of look look where we got. Or look where we are now. Where atheism is a a very thriving worldview for no very good reason. Uh, I actually today <laughs> I posted uh, to Instagram. It's a it's a post. It's it's the Wojak with the smirking face. It's except it's a it's a mask, and you can tell very clearly below underneath the mask he's crying, versus the um, Chad right. And so the Wojak says. Ha, you Christian you Christians are idiots, just blind faith meant to control you, which is if you know atheist talking points, it's just one of the many. And the Chad says, So you believe the natural universe created itself out of nothing? Question mark. And the Wojak says, What? Um, no, I don't I don't believe that. Don't put words in my mouth, I believe. And then the Chad interrupts and says, Oh, so you believe that the universe is infinite, even though that uh, an infinite universe would indicate an equally infinite likelihood that the universe shouldn't exist at all. And then the Wojak says, bro, screw you. You just hate atheists. And the Chad responds with, LOL, and you criticized me for blind faith. So I I made this meme basically off of some observations of of what atheists often do. They act like, and again, if you're an atheist, this is going to challenge you. i I apologize, but atheism, like I mentioned before, it's gone un- unquestioned for a very long time, right? And so so uh, a Christian will be here and will say something along the lines of, uh, you're made in the image and likeness of God. And, and a, an atheist will say something like, They'll say something like, um, no, you're an idiot, Christian. You're just a bunch of mysticism and magic. You believe in magic fairy god in the sky. 
right? That's the very typical atheist talking point. You believe in a magic fairy god in the sky, uh, a big needy baby, in the, a crying baby in the sky. And then they'll turn around and say something along the lines of, existence is an accident, life is meaningless, right? And, and then, they, and then they, they themselves delve into these complex, abstract thoughts. They'll, they'll pass life off as a, a mere chance, right? That, that somehow space, time, matter, energy, all things that are contingent, contingent on each other for existence in this universe... Somehow, all of those things that are contingent on each other, they must exist simultaneously uh, for any of the others to exist at all. So space must exist at the same time as time, right? It, 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 they must exist simultaneous of time. Energy must exist at the simultaneous of matter and vice versa. All of these things, you know, uh, space, for, for example, let me just give you a conundrum, right? Space must exist with matter, right? Because space is the, uh, the characteristic that we describe what matter exists in. So, and vice versa, matter must exist simultaneous with space because without space, where would matter exist? So at the same time, matter must exist simultaneous, simultaneous of time, right? Because if time doesn't exist but matter exists when would matter exist it wouldn't ever exist there would be no when so matter couldn't exist without a when and when couldn't exist without matter because then what would when describe so space time and matter are all they all are all contingent on each other for existence right and then energy of course it's a property of matter but we also know that matter is made up subatomically of energy. Basically, if you were to reduce the subatomic particles within matter down to their most basic form, is basically just energy. Yet we know that energy is also a property of matter. So they're they're exclusive to you know they're they're contingent to each other. So all of these things are contingent on each other for existence. They must all exist simultaneous of each other. Yet somehow it's, it's, it's an accident that they all exist simultaneously. Right? And even, even if – I'm not even saying that like you can even take this as far back as if you were a, a theist, take this as far back as, as the Big Bang, right? Or even multiverse theory. But at some point you have to stop trying to get – the natural universe to explain its own existence by its own means, right? So we know the natural um, that you, we know the natural world is is limited because it's governed by natural law. Okay, so it can't exist in and of itself because it can't create itself. So we know that the natural universe didn't create itself. So what does that leave us with? There's two other possibilities. One of the other possibilities is that the natural universe is infinite. So now we're reducing the aspect of the universe from nature, from natural, to infinite. Because we know that the natural universe, the, what we call the natural aspect of it, is very limited. The natural aspect is what's governed by natural law. 
But even if it is infinite, let's say it's not so natural, and somehow there's this pseudo-natural aspect of it that allows it to be infinite, that still doesn't explain why something exists rather than nothing. So we know that the universe can't create itself, and even if it even if it's if it even if it is infinite to where it doesn't need to have been created at any given instant in time there's no explanation as to why even if it is infinite why anything should exist rather than nothing so we're left with the final possibility the final reduction that God exists, that there is a creator. A creator that transcends time, space, matter, and energy. And we arrive at him, this idea of an omnipotent, omnipresent being, not because it's, it's contrived in the human mind, not because he comes from some man-made pantheon, but because he meets certain characteristics that must be true in order for this universe to have been created. In order for this universe to be here, there must have been a creator. We have reduced away all possibilities. Do you understand why I'm saying that these little things, these little arguments like... Like... uh, God is a big crying baby in the sky, a big needy fairy God in the sky. Big man in the sky. Do you understand that why, why these things are meaningless? Let alone that this this direction that atheists that the atheistic movement tends to go in is it says <laughs> existence is an accident, life is meaningless, and then they yet they 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 appeal to their underlying sense of of justice, morality, and fairness. They appeal to these metaphysical, these metaphysical feelings inside them, and they try to say something along the lines of, well, our sense of morality is nothing more than our desire to survive as a, as a, as a uh, species, right? Morality is nothing more than our ability to evolve as a species to better survive even though your conscience, your innate sense of morality, even in those who weren't taught it by their parents, often leads you to do what is against your best interest. Right? Even if it leads you not to survive. Even if everyone else in the world is wrong and you have to rebel against them in the name of right. And it doesn't mean the success of the species. We humans are capable of that. And there's a reason we're capable of that. Because we were instilled in it. Because we were made in the image and likeness of God. Understand why these little things are silly? They're musings of childs. Of children. It's 
little art project. Life is meaningless. It's all for survival. It's biological. Just chemicals in your brain. Big fairy god in the sky. It's meaningless. These little arguments, they're silly. You're wasting your time. I encourage you to wake up from that. There's much better, more important things to focus on. So really the only well-thought-out argument that I've heard um, from the atheist group concerning the stuff that I just talked about, the um, infinite versus finite self-creating universe theories, is that a an atheist will come up with this argument, and this was a very popular one that was talked about, uh, talked about by Stephen Hawking, and uh, has kind of been regurgitated by a lot of uh, scientists appreciating atheists, uh, various people in the scientific community. So this uh, the argument is that prior to the formation of the universe, matter and energy existed in what they call quantum fields or a quantum vacuum. And the laws of nature, those that govern space and time, uh, basically exist indefinitely, but they're ba- they're not pertaining to uh, matter and energy as they exist in a quantum field. And so, um, basically, what this means is a quantum. What they're talking about in a quantum field is they're basically just trying to redefine the or I guess recharacterize the infinite universe argument. So you notice they, they, they want to say, by, by saying this, they basically want to say, well, the universe is finite, it's not infinite, but it also didn't create itself. And then they set out the parameters in which they conveniently self-contrive uh, to, to give characteristics to nature so that it fills the the criteria that we just discussed, right? And so basically they're just saying um, quantum field or a quantum, a quantum vacuum. Basically they're saying matter and energy existed on a subatomic level that's different than it is to now, than it is now. So basically they're saying um, matter then exists different now, so it's hard to speculate as to how the origin of that matter and energy came about if they're contingent or not um, because they existed in a different nature than than they do now. But this is all to say basically, (laughs) they're basically just saying the infinite universe argument um, just in in a way that kind of relieves them of the burden of proving, at least from a logical, excuse me, at least from a logical standpoint, um, what in the, in the other arguments, what they were, uh, you know, they had an immediate and direct burden of proof. So what I mean by this is effectively, if they, if they just say, well, the matter and energy was different back then than it is now, um, they can fool people into thinking, well, since it's different then, than what we can observe now, then we can't speculate about then as it is now. 
when in reality, regardless of whether it exists in a quantum field or what a quantum vacuum or whatever you want to call it or not, it doesn't answer the question. Why was there matter and energy then uh, when it just as might as well have not existed at all? Why are there laws, whether they were in an act, active in their governance of matter, energy, space, and time, whether they were, they were finite, whether they're uh, infinite or not, why do they exist as opposed to not exist? Why does anything in this universe exist as opposed to not exist? If they existed indefinitely, eternally, why is that so? How can nature explain its own existence? Regardless of whether it's finite or infinite, how can matter explain its own existence? It can't. The, ent the entire idea behind matter is it, that it is, or not, not matter, nature, is that it is contingent on such a thing. Right? It's, it's, it's contingent on the existence of, of outside influence, of outside phenomena, in the same way that I just described to you. Regardless of if it was different then than it is now, there's fundamental characteristics of the existence of, of natural reality that causes it to behave in the, the way that it is, regardless of, of whether it is different. Right? We can approach this from a logical way. So at the end of the day, it's really not that well thought out. What I mean by it was well thought out is that it's, it's cleverly worded in the way that it can relieve them of the proof of burden. At the end of the day, you realize that even if you argue that matter and energy existed indefinitely in a quantum vacuum, you get yourself into a continuum, right? Into a continuous argument of trying to trace back origins. Well, what came before the quantum vacuum? Well, this came before the quantum vacuum. Well, what came before that? Well, this came before that, right? So you get into this, this cyclical motion of trying to get matter to explain itself, and the whole reason that you get yourself into this, this idiot, idiotic cycle of trying to continuously explain it is because everybody knows deep down that matter can't explain its own existence. There always must be, if, if you try to argue that it does, there's always going to be a, pre a preceding event. Because we know that matter acts in the way that, what is it that we call it? A fundamental law of physics, a fundamental law of nature, that action causes equal and opposite reaction. Inevitably, everything in this natural world is contingent on something else. Which means the beginning, and we all know that there must be a beginning and an end, that's the whole point of action and reaction to nature. If there was a beginning which it, there must be according to our, our fundamental understanding of how nature operates, then that beginning must have come from a source that is not contingent on anything else. It, it is not beholden to space, nor time, nor matter, nor energy. 
it has the characteristics of what you and I might call omnipotent and omnipresent. It exists outside of space and outside of time. It is equally present in every aspect of space and time, past, present, future, everywhere, simultaneously. It is all-knowing, all-powerful. It can set into motion anything that exists now in nature out of nothing before time even began. This is why the phenomenon with the burning bush that we see in Scripture, where Moses is in the desert and he stumbles upon the burning bush, and he hears God's voice calling out to him. And the bush tells him, remove your sandals for you standing on holy ground. And Moses asks who God is. And the spirit answers him, I am, I am. In other words, I am he who exists for no other reason than for his own being. He is not contingent on anyone else. His existence does not rely on the existence of anything to precede him. It is phenomenal. Little aspects of the Bible that not only atheists but regular Christians take for granted. Did you ever think of it like that? Think about that. The early theistic writers of the Old Testament who knew God but did lit understood very little about science documented I am I am the words of God think about how phenomenal that is and so why does a, a contingent being a divine infinite eternal being with ultimate power and no need for anything else, create. Well, you'll find, if you really think about it, that he's the most genuine being that could ever exist. You and I, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around these things. We do things not for their own purpose. We do things because you and I, we have wants and desires. We are limited by our needs there's scarcity of resources in this world. We hunger, we thirst. We have natural instinct. We've never, ever existed in a way in which we're not contingent on something else, in which we don't have needs or wants or requirements in order just to live just as he does. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need shelter. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need love. He doesn't need company. That's an interesting topic getting into the Trinity, actually, that I can talk at some other point. But think about this. He doesn't need love. He didn't need to create you. Right? So why did he create you? Why did he create any of this? Because he's the most genuine being that could ever exist. He does things for their own purpose. The only reason he created was for creation's own purpose. And that is what true love is. A love that transcends what you and I could ever even imagine. 
Although we have something similar, like a parent, a father and a mother, who, although they don't need to create more life, they could go on living their lives, their natural lives, without ever having a child. They decide to for the purpose of creating new life, for love. That is a shadow of what God of God's motive behind his creation, his true, genuine instinct, his true, genuine uh, motivation for creation. And so some of you might have heard, just listened to my analogy about parents, and you might think, well, I don't really know that because I don't have a parent, or I don't really know that because I don't have a parent that loves me. I have a parent that hates me. Or I don't know that because I just I don't have a parent that cares about me. They might not hate me, but they just don't care. Or perhaps you you have parents that care, but you've never felt purpose in life. Here comes the train. You've never felt any motiv- motivation in your life. Never love. Well, know now. Something you must accept is that there is a God who's contingent on nothing else, who created you for the sole purpose of his love. I hope that's reassuring. Golly, that thing is loud. Well, anyways... I'll move on for, to a little bit of a different topic. Um, I got some. I got a meme. <laughs> I found this. Uh, it was the meme that I referenced earlier about the atheist arguments. It's a uh, Twitter post from. It's called Patriarch Prime, and it says atheist arguments. And this is kind of a meme format. God is meme. I'm sorry. God is mean. Not God is meme. God is mean. Christians are mean. If God real, why bad thing happen? I'm monkey. Shellfish polyester. Too many religion. Why can't I look outside and see God? If God is real, why do I like to take it up the butt? Out of context, Bible verse. And ironically, this is, and hilariously, these are frequent atheist arguments against Christianity or just against the idea of a God in general. You hear it all the time. If God is real, then he's mean. Well, first off, it's heavily contestable. (laughs) They say God is mean generally because bad things exist in the world. And they say, well, if bad things exist in the world, then God must have put them there, right? Excuse the fact that Bad things exist in the world, much to do with the depravity of man, not the depravity of God. And then they say, well, if bad things exist, then God must not exist. Which is obviously just an idiotic thing to say in general. Christians are mean. Another idiotic thing. Christians, if you experience hatred from a Christian, that is not a... (laughs) 
It's not a good argument against the existence of God. If God real, why bad thing happen? Well, I can tell you the Christian answer for this is because um, the fall of man, a.k.a. the rebellion, the decision of man to go his own way from God's way, and and thus, since God is a perfect being with a perfect will, and man is an imperfect being with an imperfect will, introduced wrongdoing into the world at the temptation of the devil, another spiritual being who also decided to rebel from God and tempted man and continues to tempt man. But it's not something that God just allows to exist willy-nilly. You see, he gave man free will because God is truly vested in the creation, the genuine motivation for love. And so he can't just force man to love him like an automaton. Man has, must choose love. So rebellion, sin, evil, these are all existent because God decided to give man the ability to choose, the freedom to choose, so that man might choose to love God. And although sin and evil enter the world because of man's bad decisions and the temptations from the devil, God actively fights the evil. And the sending of Jesus Christ, who is arguably the most provable figure in ancient history, and the death, existence, death, and resurrection are cited by at least seven ancient historians. You don't hear that a lot. You don't hear that a lot by atheist historians. And atheists, the, the biggest argument against the witnessing of Christ's resurrection by atheist historians is what they call mass hallucination. They basically say, well, enough people in history claimed to see Christ resurrect, but we're just going to chalk it off to mass hallucination. That's a conversation for a different time. But God sent Christ to suffer and die, along with a lot of other things in his life, to lead us as an example to show God's willingness to commingle and to lead and to bring us to him, but ultimately to destroy sin and death through his own death. And thus give us the power to revive, to be, in, to be faithful We were like dead in our faith and we are revived by Christ's resurrection and his grace in us. Able to fight the temporal holdings of sin on our lives afterwards, after his death. So that's the Christian answer of why evil exists. But if you say this to a (laughs) an atheist, they'll, they'll, they like to point out that evil exists, but if you like, if you give them an explanation as to why evil exists and why it's not a 
a good explanation as to <laughs> that God doesn't exist, apparently. Um, they don't really don't like that. In fact, the presence of evil is an indication that God does exist. You see, if God doesn't exist, then right and wrong, good and evil, they're not real. I've made this argument before. Good and evil and the recognition of it is an innate understanding of humans because God is real. The only reason that we're able to determine what is good and what is evil, and again, this isn't just our preference. We can prefer evil, yet know that the opposite is good, right? I could prefer something, yet know that it's evil to do. So preference has really nothing to do with it. You hear atheists make that 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 argument a lot, that morality, the difference between good and evil, is just preference. Except it's really not. We're born with consciences that enable us to det- distinguish between good and evil. And only through the constant habituation of wrongdoing do we suppress that conscience. So the fact that you even have the idea, the ability to discern that there are logically two things that we call good and evil, shows that there is an objective standard to what is good. And that falling away from that is an increasing degree of evil. So no, the presence of badness or evil in the world is not an indication that God doesn't exist. It's an indication that he does exist. You just have a really crappy perspective. I'm monkey. It's evolution shilling. I don't even think you have to disagree with evolution. I had, my my father is a neurologist. He's, you know, he's a scientist. My mother is a neurotechnician, worked in his clinic for a long time, also a scientist. They both believe in evolution. Um, and they're both Christian and they believe that they're going to go to heaven because they have faith in God. So <laughs> you're shilling to evolution regardless of what, if it's true or not. Um, really, it doesn't disprove God. It doesn't, the presence of evolution doesn't disprove God. It just uh, implies that creation stories in the Bible may be more metaphorical than they are literal. So, your evidence is not too great. Too many religion. You see this a lot. Uh, By the way, I'm just going down the list of the meme. Too many religion. Atheists will say, there's too many religions out there. So that it's just, it's indication that none of them are correct. Or how can you tell if any of them are correct or not? Ironically, in scripture, in Christian scripture, we see that the the fact that there's too many religions uh, or a lot of religions in general, too many is kind of a preferential term. That's your opinion if there's too many. No one's actually claiming or there's no objective measurement as to what is too many and what is too few. Um, but scripture says the whole reason that there's too many religions 
or a lot of religions is that God gives man the innate understanding that there is that there is divinity in this universe. And he gives man the ability to observe the universe, observe the environment and make these deductions. Well, here's matter, here's energy, here's space, here's time. Where did they come from? They must all have come together at one point in time. I deduce logically that there must be a God who created it. Mankind universally can come to this decision, can come to this logical fact. And then in their isolation, without exposure to, to mission work or to scripture, they come up with their own explanations as to the God that they believe or that, you know, they make it plural. That's the re- reason that there's a lot of religions. Because man is able to discern by God's grace that God exists even though they weren't exposed to scripture. So, again, this quote, too many religions, unquote, is not good evidence that God doesn't exist. It's actually indicated, it indicates that God does exist. Why can't I look outside and see God? Because God is supernatural. He transcends nature. He exceeds space and time, matter and energy. You can see the effect of God just as you can see the effect of gravity, but you can't look out your window and see God. Your senses observe natural phenomenon in your environment. They're very limited, and often you can't even trust your senses. It's this materialistic, naturalistic worldview that is actually perverting the idea of what truly exists they insist that the only things that exist in nature are or that that exist in general are those in nature those that are made of matter and energy and therefore the only things that exist are what you can you can see smell feel hear and touch it's wrong it's not true it's materialism it's, it's the logical conclusion of materialism, this pervert idea that that's all there is. It's very goobery. It's a very childlike mentality. Yet, much of the modern scientific realm is based entirely on this idea. If you try to talk metaphysics with scientists these days, they basically they they smurf at you, or they I'm sorry, they smirk at you, smurf. <laughs> and so, something that you can easily say to confuse one is just say, "So you only be, you only believe in matter and energy," and most of them will say, "Yeah, yeah, that's all there is." And so you say, um, "So where do your perspectives of of um, right and wrong, fair treatment, justice, morality, good, evil. Where do these come from? And, of course, some of them will have the smarts to say, well, these are survivability traits that humans have built in our, into ourselves. And you, 
of course, are going to say the logical thing of, ex- except for the fact when morality, what's right, what's good, doesn't leave, lead you to survival. It might not even lead the entire race to survival. Even if it comes at a, sac- a great cost, a great sacrifice, we know that we have to do good. And, of course, at that point, usually they become disinterested because um, they have no time for being wrong. And um, many of them are very stuck in their ways, right? So, so but uh, that's generally a, a pretty good argument to get them to shut up. Um, if God is real, why do I like to take it in the butt? Because you're a perverse human being. In your heart, you're a degenerate. You've chosen to reject God and his will. In your rebellion, your insistence that God isn't real. It has led you to take on more perverse and sinful acts to the point where you think you're attracted to it. It has become a disorder in your mind Your spiritual condition has affected your physical body to the point where you're now chemically attracted and chemically addicted to a perverted disorder. And then out of context Bible verse because um, atheists love to do that. So I'm sure about now you're wondering why I'm droning on about atheism when the uh, title of this episode is concerning strife, contemplation, and toil. So it's uh, a reference to thinking a great deal and probably a negative connotation about living an arduous life or or, uh, living under persecution or oppression or of something of that nature, right? So, or or hard physical task or a hard task in general. So, why do I drone on about atheism uh, and uh, theism or Christianity with a title like that, right? And so it's taken me long enough to get here, right? To get to the point, I've gone on for a tangent about 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 an hour now. So, what's the point of going over all this? Well, I found that this is, uh, <laughs> these arguments that are raised with the atheistic line of reasoning, or, you know, agnostic line of reasoning, whichever you want to go with, um, the arguments that you inevitably arrive to, like the very basic ones, like, if God is real, then why does something bad happen? If God is real, why must I have hardship have hardship in my life? Right? It's uh if God is real, why do I do bad? Why do I do wrong? Inevitably these are um arguments that are portraying a philosophy in which some people approach life, in which to cast away negative attributes from themselves onto something else, or to cast away negative attributes that they recognize that do exist really in the world 
onto something else, onto God in particular. And these are actually very important things for us in our life. Here in the natural world, in our natural life, it's very important that we have hardship. Even if it wasn't the result of sin. But especially now that it is the result of sin, it is important for us. The struggle is important. The hardships that we face are important. And it's not so much that you need to be thankful for the hardships, but that you need to understand the role of toil and strife. You see, the, the, the greatest explanations for faith in God, the greatest explanations uh, for his existence come about in a life dedicated to hard thinking. To hard consideration. That's why I call it a, life, a contemplation, life of contemplation, strife, and toil. Because these are the methods that best result in this, a greater understanding of the reality of the world. Better yet, a greater understanding of the creator of the reality of the world. So just think about that. Think about what does it say whenever you say, um, if God is real, then why do evil things or bad things happen? Why does evil exist? I already gave you the Christian explanation, right? But so you're immediately taking that, the existence of evil and the fact that you have to battle against evil, that you must strive to do good you're immediately casting away the fact that there is meritorious effort in this in the struggle to do good. You're saying that the existence of the distinction between good and evil itself is a bad thing, right? You're saying that why if God is real, then why does evil exist? Well, your implication there is that if God is real, you think there shouldn't be a difference between good and evil, right? Because evil only exists because an objective good is identifiable. So now portray that into your own life philosophy. How is that looking? You have a negative connotation between a clear distinction between good and evil? And what happens when you put that into practice? good and evil merge, you're basically saying it's a bad thing that there's a distinction between good and evil. That doesn't... How, how can you be a good person and say that? Do you understand what I'm saying? If God is real, then why do I do evil? It's a very self-revealing argument, Right? If God is real, then why does evil exist? Why do I do evil? And you kind of thrust away the fact that whether you do evil or not is non-consequential to the existence of God. A perfect good and a perfect objective good, independent of what you think is right and wrong, is perfectly feasible and plausible regardless of how you act. 
accept it. It's true. Now put it into practice. Logically think what happens if you, if you were to practice these explanations you give for your atheism, what will it look like? Not too good of actions. The ironic thing is that the most ardent atheists often have the greatest explanations between right and wrong. What they believe is right and wrong. If you ask most atheists, atheists, they have some sort of angst against God because they believe God, the, or at least the idea of God, is inherently evil. Yet the entire point, like what I just described to you, is that evil only exists when there is an objective standard dis- distinguishing between good and evil. To argue against, to, uh, to adopt this atheistic or agnostic point of view, that there is no objective good, then you can't argue that there's an objective evil, and therefore you can't say that God, or the idea of God, itself is evil. You can't say, as many atheists do, that Christians indoctrinate people or use religion to control them, and portray that in a negative or immoral ma- manner. I don't believe that many Christians do that. I believe that states have used religions in the past and continue to do so, but I don't think a a firm and true Christian actually uses their faith to control anybody because that goes against the fundamental teachings of the Christian faith. However, let's say that they did. If you're an ardent atheist and you, you you only believe in the material... Space, time, matter, energy. Everything else, metaphysical, spiritual, incorporeal, meaning without a body. Everything else is meaningless, right? Or it just doesn't even exist. It's not just that it doesn't have meaning, it's that it doesn't exist at all. Well, how can you give character, act, act like it's real, that there's good and evil. How can you say that it's bad? That anybody uses anything to control anybody else? Ironic, isn't it? That some of the most, the, the greatest, uh, most popular atheistic arguments are based on something that are counterindicative of it. The, the, in, the, the, the assertion that religion or spirituality is immoral, the, the atheistic claim that religion or spirituality is immoral, is counterindicative of the assertion that spirituality doesn't exist. Because morality and immorality, good and evil, are indicative that spirituality does exist. This is all going to say that there is real good. There is real evil. In your argument of <laughs> if God is real, then why, why does evil exist? Fundamentally, 
causes you to acknowledge the fact that evil does exist. And thus why it's important to strive against it. I find that this atheistic theology of itself, it is atheism in many sorts, is a form of theology on its own, is the arrival of lazy minds. And if you're an atheist, I'm sorry (laughs) if you take offense to that. I find a lot of guys approach it from a single avenue. Even guys who started off as Christians and then ended up as atheists. And we're all kind of like this. We feed into our assumptions. We all on some level or another have single track minds. We start to identify with our beliefs and our assumptions. And then we look for confirmation bias. Right? And then anything else if you're a truly honest person if you if you see new information that is uh is uh, disproves your assumptions and your opinions if you're a truly honest person then you consider them the issue is is that without the the belief of virtue without the belief that there is a right and wrong or at least you're pushing down the acceptance of right and wrong. It's very hard to take on the attribute of honesty. At the end of the day, my my point is is that your worldviews are going to shape your practice of philosophy in your life. So when you approach this world and you say either there is no distinction between good or evil or you say evil does exist and God is bad for doing it, either way, you're taking a very weak approach to the very real nature of this world. Which is evil. You've identified it. In one hand you've identified it. And in the other hand you haven't. Right? Atheism kind of does, does it both ways. That In one hand they say. There's no distinction between good and evil. And in the other hand they say. God is evil. Weird. Anyways. You have to accept the reality that there is evil. In which case you must accept the reality that there is objective good and that you must pursue it. And here's where the hardship comes in, right? The strife. You must accept that your life is, if you commit your life to contemplation, to doing good, not just ending up good. You, I hear atheists say this all the time. Well, I don't believe in God. Does that mean you think that I can't be good? Of course not. I think that you can have virtue. I think you can have valor, courage, honor, respect, dignity, compassion, love. I think you can have all these things. 
The issue is I think you have these things despite your beliefs, not because of them. Atheism has not made you a better person. Your rejection of the distinction between good and evil has not made you a better person. You have become a better person despite those beliefs. Do you understand why it's important now? Atheism isn't the cause of you becoming a good person. It is, at most, a, a inhibitor of you becoming a good person, of you becoming a better person. Your growth into becoming a better person has been halted in some degree by your crappy worldview. And many Christians get this wrong, too. They might accept on a, on a basic level that God exists, but they, they don't commit themselves to the life of com- contemplation, to the life of toil and strife, where they have to struggle to be good. And in many ways, they have rejected Christ. They're the ones in Scripture that Christ talked about whenever they see him in heaven and they come to him and they say, Lord, Lord. And he looks at them and he says, I never knew you. And they are cast from heaven into the dark where there is wailing and moaning and gnashing of teeth. There will be many believers cast into the dark because their belief was not living faith. It was not fruitful. You cannot tell where their allegiances lied, who was lord over their life, because their belief was had no fruit. If God is your lord, you will be able to tell it by your fruit. If God, if God is your master, it is obvious. If he has not caused any, if your life is not indicative of any meaningful change, then how can you say he changed your life? So trust me, atheists, it's not just you that I, I, I seek to change. I think probably 90% of Christians are like this as well. I think a great deal of Christians, if it weren't for the mercy of God, would be cast from his sight. I think all of us deserve to be cast from his sight. But with that being said, Scripture clearly shows that some are fruitful and others are not. But regardless, you have to commit your your life. Every man, regardless of your worldview, whether you're a believer or an atheist, Jew or Gentile, you are called to commit your life to that contemplation, a life of contemplation. This is how you end up. It's, it's the stereotypical cycle. Someone starts off as a Christian, and they, they really have no reason for be, being a Christian. It's because they grew up in a Christian household, right? Or something along those lines. They've, they've got no good reason to be a Christian, that they are a Christian. And as soon as their worldview is challenged, they become an atheist. 
and over a longer period of time in which they begin to contemplate, they question their atheism and come back to, to the belief, the acknowledgement of the, the reality that God exists. And so that middle tier of the bell curve is the atheistic stage. And then you come back down and you realize the reality of what must be. And that's the commitment. You arrive there by committing your life to contemplation. These are truths that you only arrive by committing your life to contemplation. And it's hard. Some of these things, I know, I, I understand. Some of these things are legitimately challenging to your worldview because you have come up with an idea of what is right and what is wrong. Even atheists who who specifically say there is no dis- there there is no distinction between good and evil. It's all preference. It's all a survivability trait that our species has developed through evolution. Yet on a very basic level in inside, even though they like to throw it away, they like to ignore it. They know that's not true. And to accept this and come into the life of contemplation is incredibly challenging. It's like falling down a flight of stairs. It's painful. Admitting that you are wrong, especially on such great a level, is very painful. Christians have to do it. Atheists and agnostics have to do it. I promise you, whether you're a Christian or you're an atheist or agnostic, you're never going to be able to live a truly fulfilling life until you come to these realities and then put them into practice. I talked about virtues and the application of virtues in an early podcast, so I'm not going to tell you how to go live a virtuous life in this podcast But this is a very basic underlying philosophy talk. Committing yourself to a life of strife, to a life of toil. It sounds gross. Right? It sounds hard. It sounds worthless. It's because... For a lot of us, much of our worldview has, especially in the modern world, has been oriented around seeking pleasure. The pursuit of happiness, a great political uh, slogan, right? Very built into the American ideology. But I tell you now that this has become an idol The pursuit of happiness has become an idol. It's surpassed its meaning as a goal, and it's deemed itself an all-encompassing principle of life. So instead of existing within itself as a goal, nothing more than a goal, it has now become its own principle Do you understand the difference between the principle and the goal? So whenever it's a goal, this is just an avenue. So for example, a life of toil and strife can very much be the practice of the pursuit of happiness as long as the pursuit of happiness is a goal. 
because you realize that toil and strife and contemplation result in satisfaction in the greater greater scheme of things it become it you end up knowing truth being able to distinguish good and evil and while your life might be hard you'll end up happy whereas whenever it's become an idol the pursuit of happiness all you do day in day out is seeking pleasure because you've misidentified pleasure and comfort as happiness as the pursuit of happiness whatever makes you happy you have the the liberty we like to say that here and you guys in the liberty community you probably know me i have long since been involved in the liberty community i'm not saying that you should uh have some sort of tyrannical state that uh, puts its boot on your throat and forces you to live in a certain way that a political elite tell you to. That's not what I'm saying. I'm very much talking about personal autonomy, the decisions that you make to live your own life. You should have the liberty to live your own life. The issue is, is that whenever people have that freedom, all too often they forsake themselves to these idols and that slavery to idols is just as great as a physical slavery to a state. So this idol, the pursuit of happiness, why is that an idol? Why is it so bad that people can just do what makes them happy? Because the minds and hearts of degenerate men are made happy, are pleased by acts of evil. Whenever you've habituated yourself to evil and it starts off small, just watching a little porn, right? Just playing a little video games. Just on my phone a little too long. I was doing that just a few minutes ago. I was I, I was listening to a scary story on actually a from Horror Babble, they're uh, H-O-R-R-O-R, the Horror Babble. Sorry, I probably should pronounce that a little bit more emphasis on the latter O-R. <laughs> but uh, they they do scary stories, which I love scary stories, obviously. And I was, d- doing, I was listening to that while I was doing dishes here in the little apartment while I'm out on the job. And before I know it, I, I've, I had been sitting at, just playing on my phone, looking through social media for 10, 15 minutes, maybe even longer. It starts off small, complacency, some, some a little worse than others, and it builds. And before long, you've committed yourself, you've habituated yourself into a life of sin. And when anybody questions you on it, it's, well, you just don't want me to be happy because you've just been pursuing what makes you happy because this thing has become your idol. Now you identify with your sin. And your identification with sin has made you naturally opposed to good. So this is why pursuit of happiness can become an idol. You can't just say, 
<laughs> like the American, original American political documents, I found that that reactionary piece of paper has caused us a lot of trouble in the American culture. From numerous sides, but one in particular, it's the insinuation that freedom is to be unfettered, right? Now, they were talking specifically about political freedom, as in to have self-sovereignty from a, a tyrannical monarchy, right? But the implication there was more. The wording that they chose was more. The original wording was uh, Life, Liberty, Property by John Locke. And then Thomas Jefferson, it was it was construed differently somewhere along the line during the, there's the various constitutions and Bill of Rights for the different states, and inevitably, obviously, the, the United States adopted a constitution and Bill of Rights. But first it was uh, the Declaration of Independence, right? But anyways, this... Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness changed from property to the pursuit of happiness, namely by Jefferson. It's painting it in a way that's more than just this political discussion. Regardless of your, your status as a free man from the authority of, of a tyrannical state, you're never going to be unfettered. You will always have duties and responsibilities. Yes, you do have responsibilities. You can be a completely free man and yet still have moral responsibilities. There will always be something that you ought to do. There will always, you will always have the responsibility to do good over evil. And you will have the responsibility to be able to identify what is good. And to do that, and to be able to identify what is evil, and not to do that. And this can be just as simple as, you're faced with a decision in your life. If you're a Christian, you have the moral responsibility to do what is good. Say what you want, I don't care. If you want to argue that, I challenge you, go stand at the foot of Jesus Christ and tell him, I have no duty to do good. See where that ends you up. But atheists, you're not exempt either. I've given you plenty of argument here as to why good and evil, the distinction between the two, exist and why God himself exists here. I've never heard, even from the supposed authorities on atheism, I've never heard truly a good explanation as to how God couldn't exist. I've heard a lot of faithful talk, 
a lot of hopeful talk about how God, that people hope God doesn't exist. And it's portrayed in a way as to make it sound scientifically factual. You must do good. You have the obligation. And it will be hard. Strife, toil, the life of contemplation. If you're an atheist, I want to challenge you to contemplate. I want to challenge you to think about these things. Think about them from the perspective that I've, I've laid out. If you're really seeking the truth, you will. You know, you, you know that. You can't deny it. You can't be honest with yourself and say, oh yeah, I'm seeking the truth. And then someone like me comes around and gives you some plenty good arguments for the existence of God and this distinguishment between good and evil. And then as soon as you hear that, you stick your fingers in your ears and say, la, 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 la. I challenge you to the life of contemplation. Christians, most of you are in this, the place now. A lot of you are bowing to idols. And I challenge you to be able to locate, identify what those idols are. And for you, put into practice that strife and toil. Eliminate idols. Work hard. Let your living faith in God be demonstrated in your good deeds. If your faith is true, then it will change your life. And it will be visible to all. It's something I struggle with too. I'm not going to sit here and act like I, I'm the best at it. One of my main prayers, probably for the last two or three months now, has been, God, please help me to be more public with my faith. In a time of persecution, the best thing that I could do in an unbelieving world is to show people that I am unafraid to bear your cross on my forehead. To have your word on my tongue. And then I get, you know, into the office at work or on the street or... Even though I know that in my state, the majority of people are, are religious in some way. Or at least I assume so. You know, the the polls say that 70% or whatever of, of Americans are believe in God or whatever, but I I don't know if I really believe that. I especially don't believe that they put it into practice. I think the degenerate society, the consumeristic society that we have right now is just obvious. That's not, that's not true, right? It's not true. People might say they believe in God, but whether they believe it in a literal or applicable way is up to it's up to debate. But anyways, I just, I don't, I have a hard time vocalizing it to people. 
I get so worried that I'm, I'm going to offend someone and it's not that I care about offending people. It's more along the lines of, well, I don't want to get fired or something like that because this, in this day and age, like if I were to put on an email to a client or something, God bless or something, you know, that's in some places that can get you fired. I, I pray to have that courage. I want that courage. I'm asking God earnestly for that courage. But then at the end of the day, it's not just God. You know, he, he moves in me to regenerate me with his grace. But at some point, I have to accept that I am responsible for my actions. It's not just all in God. There's a lot of good believers out there who have let the world fall into darkness, the new dark age, because they're lazy and afraid, like me. And I want to be better, and I will be better. And I want you to challenge me to be better. And I challenge you to be better. Atheist, Christian, I challenge you to not be thrown out into the dark where there's moaning and wailing and gnashing of teeth. We live in a new dark age where good is evil and evil is good. We live in a new dark age when men's hearts are satisfied by degeneracy. We live in a new dark age where tyrannical governments reign supreme over everybody else and everybody else just lets it happen because in their heart, just as long as they're comfortable, just as long as they can pursue their happiness, they're fine with it. The darkness has had dominion on this earth for a very long time and Christ died to destroy its permanent hold. And we fight the temporal battle. And it will come to an end. But in the meantime, we must fight. And it is in the fight that we do good. And that's why strife and toil and our contemplation matters. You must accept this. I'll pray for you. I hope you pray for me. God bless.